Well, you probably can't help but to notice that we're in the season of Lent. It's a pretty stark contrast with the rest of the year. We go to using the old Book of Common Prayer. Today began with the Great Litany. And of course, Lent is dramatic also in the fact that we omit that, that word beginning with the letter A, which means praise the Lord. And we focus on fasting, on introspection, on special prayer, and on almsgiving, all so that we might be able to increase our devotion to Christ and join with him in his fasting and temptation, as we heard in the gospel today, in some small way imitating that which he's shown us. As the Ash Wednesday service puts it so well, this season of Lent provides a time in which converts to the faith were prepared for holy baptism. It was also a time when those who, because of notorious sins, had been separated from the body of the faithful, were reconciled by penitence and forgiveness, and restored to the fellowship of the church. In this manner, the whole congregation is put in mind of the message of pardon, an absolution set forth in the gospel of our Savior and of the need that all Christians continually have to renew our repentance and faith. No matter how young or old or spiritually new or mature you are, we need to examine our hearts, to repent and lament, and to forsake, and as the Bible tells us, to hate, yes, to hate, the sins and sinfulness that would keep us from God. It's a strange message to many ears today because the overarching theme of our postmodern West throws its lot in with Pontius Pilate, famously asking Jesus, what is truth? And of course, if there's no truth, then there's no need to repent. In a culture that values radical individual autonomy, such as ours, in all areas of existence, and then the by necessity, any claim to a law universal to all human beings seems strangely passé. It seems out of place. The pull of such cultural pressures is so strong that some Christians, priests, yeah, even bishops and archbishops and entire church denominations have been pulled into that vortex. But that's nothing new. It's an ancient trick the devil himself uses, and he just redecorates it from time to time, just as he used it first to seduce Eve and then Adam. The same temptation that he presents to us, he presents to Christ in the gospel today. Take this fruit, you will be like God. I will give you the ability to be like God. Bow down to me. You can be master of your own existence. But we humans are short-sighted and foolish, unlike Jesus, and so we repeatedly take the bait. So the core Christian and Jewish belief about objective truth and eternal law seem threatening to us as a postmodern culture. They seem threatening to those outside the church because they would seem to be restricting they would seem to bring judgment, for in fact, they do. 
although they're not so much restricting as they are protective. The call to freedom through service and forgiveness through repentance does not make sense in light of a postmodern belief that anything goes. And interestingly, it made more sense, it made no more sense to the pagan Romans or the Sumerians, who were the context first of the Christians and of the initial Jewish people, respectively. They would ask, why find a God? Even though they were not so, even they, however, were not so foolish as to declare themselves that God, to declare themselves the arbiter of everything that is good and evil. The Ten Commandments has stood for centuries, not has stood for centuries as ground zero, not just for moral and ethical and a legal guide, but also as the bedrock of veracity. That's the necessary anchor for truth. And the necessary anchor for truth is found in its creator, God Almighty, as we're going to see today. Without little reason to care about objectivity, there's very little to care about what is moral. There's very little reason, rather, to care about what is moral or what is ethical. And honestly, one only keeps the law to avoid punishment. And even at that, you might not get caught. So there's little reason to keep that legally. But in God's plan, it, that's exactly where the Ten Commandments begin. There is a God, the commandments assert, and he has the right, and he alone the right, to command. He is the one who defines what is good and what is just. And everything starts with him. Look at the first commandment. It's there in your bulletin under the sermon title. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods but me, is the first commandment. In the original, in the history of civilization, this commandment was revolutionary. Do you realize that? In the original language, God is not merely saying that he is their Lord, their particular Lord, but he's saying that he is the Lord, the master of the Hebrews, and indeed the God Almighty of all the universe, who has chosen them as a particular people to be his own. The Ten Commandments are recorded both in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy 5, if you want to look at the context. Moses comes down from the mountain after meeting with God and speaks God's law to Israel, introducing it with these words. This is from Deuteronomy 5. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In the original Hebrew, what you see as Lord, and if you're looking at your Bibles, you'll see it as Lord with all caps, or in your scripture inserts, it's also listed that way. That's actually a holding place for the Tetragrammaton, which we pronounce Yahweh, or in older translations, Jehovah. It's not the word Lord meaning your master, but it's the word Lord, 
referring back to God's proper name that he gives to Moses. Do you remember the proper name that he gives to Moses in the burning bush? We read it this week in the daily office morning readings, right? What does he say? Tell them, I am. I am who I am. There's a significance in this because God is saying a very profound philosophical thing here. He's saying, I am my own cause. I am my own cause. I am existence and the cause of existence itself. Everything that exists, exists because of me. St. Paul, 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If that's understood, the second commandment makes perfect sense. The second commandment being, you shall not make for yourself any idol. God's revealed to his people with his name that he's no creature. He's not part of creation. But he is God. And if God is existence and the cause of existence itself, logically, there can be no other gods. Think about it for a moment. If the existence itself that causes itself to exist is God, who else can compare to that? What else can compare to that? By definition, nothing. Both St. Anselm and St. Aquinas write about this extensively, right? But suffice it to say, there's no way that this God is dependent upon anyone, let alone man. And the, the prophet Isaiah makes it clear just how silly idol worship is. This is Isaiah chapter 44, verse 13. I'll read it to you. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Over the half that he eats meat, he roasts and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Now, I like fires. I like carpentry. But what's Isaiah saying here? What's the Lord saying through him? That fashioning an idol makes no sense from a logical standpoint. This is actually an argument that he's making that who is man that he could create an idol? And if he creates the idol and fashions the idol himself, he can't be, the idol by definition can't be God. It can't be over him, right? If you are giving existence to something, making something, how could that thing possibly reign over you or deliver you? Isaiah finishes writing in verse 19, 
No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Do you see the foolishness that the Lord is pointing out about idols? It makes no sense to think that you or I as a human being can fashion a God to worship. Yet, what happens? Our prideful delusion, and the prideful delusion and darkening generally of mankind is so strong that it brings that delusion into reality. The Old Testament is full of examples of how everyone surrounding Israel worshipped cast, carved, or hewn idols. Israel's God stands unique as its own cause, as his own cause in existence. And if that philosophical argument is not enough for you, the Lord God has just decimated the Egyptians and their gods by freeing his people Israel. Egypt's gods, including Pharaoh himself, have been shown recently, right before the giving of the Ten Commandments, to be utterly impotent and defeated. Pharaoh and his army lies dead at the bottom of the Red Sea. Israel's God stands unique in his own cause. So the first commandment is declaring a lot more than initially meets the eye, if you put all this together, right? The I am existence himself, your God, you shall have no other gods but me, is not just some moral or religious declaration to be contained within the walls of a church or a prayer book or a holy book or to be applied to your personal faith. Rather, it's a declaration of objective truth and fact to the world. A declaration of objective truth and fact to the world that there is the Lord God Almighty and he is God of all. The I am, the cause of existence, the same Lord God who we heard in the first reading today created the heavens and the earth, who breathed life into the nostrils of man, who took man and woman and put them in the garden to work it and keep it. This God has revealed himself to men and women through Moses and Israel. And we do not have to guess at whether God exists or not. He does not just leave clues in nature and philosophy, though he does that wonderfully. He has shown up. He has spoken. He has declared himself supreme, and then he's done the philosophical work to show how he's supreme. Do you see all that wrapped in the first commandment? He is God, big G, above the Egyptian pantheon of gods, little g. And Pharaoh, who declared himself a god, or Caesar later, who declared himself a god, he's above them too. He reigns above the Greek gods of Mount Olympus and the Sumerian and Akkadian and Persian gods and any others that might claim to be gods. As modern people, you and I fail to understand just how freeing this was for the people of Israel. The Lord God had literally freed them from Egyptian slavery. Oh yes, but he'd also freed them from fear. He'd freed them from fearing a pantheon of gods like Moloch, who demanded child sacrifice. If you read the Iliad or the Odyssey, any stories about the Greek gods, the main characters are always doing what? They're 
is killing each other, right? But they're killing each other, and they're trying to appease the gods who are also at war, by the way, right? Think about the Iliad, for example. Achilles is supported by Athena, Hera, and Poseidon, and opposed by Ares, Aphrodite, and Apollo, just to name a few. So the ancients lived continually in this state of fear that they might offend a god or just be caught in the crossfire. By contrast, Israel was called to believe in the one God, the one alone who was supreme. And he was the God who chose them, who did not need their worship as the other gods did, but deserved their worship because he was existence and their life itself. As J.A. Moyer writes, Yahweh would forever be the God who redeemed his people and overthrew his enemies, the God of saving mercy and just judgment. Well, what do these commandments have to do with us today as we enter this sermon series in Lent? We're going to, to look at that together for the next few weeks. As far as the first commandment goes, there is the obvious, of course. As New Testament people known as Christians, followers of Jesus, were united with Jews in worshiping the one Lord God Almighty. And we disagree on who Jesus is with the Jews or the dogma of the Trinity, but we do worship the one God Almighty. But beyond this, we have nothing in common with anyone else's God. I'll say that again. Beyond this, we should have nothing in common with anybody else's God. Not Muslims, not Hindus, not the myriad of gods put forth by other religions. It should go without saying that we don't worship in spaces dedicated to other gods. We do not invite leaders from those other faiths into our consecrated space to preach or to conduct rites to their gods. You should not take part in interfaith services. And I'm not talking here about Anglicans and Lutherans and Roman Catholics getting together. That's not interfaith. That's interdenominational. I'm talking about Christians and Muslims, for example, holding a service together. As Philip Reichen writes, pluralism has come to America, where there are now more than 600 non-Christian religions. With so many options, people say it doesn't really matter which religion we choose as long as our faith is right for us. It's fine to follow Christ, but only if we recognize that he is not the only God. The pl this pluralistic approach to religion is a direct attack on the first commandment. And it's the air that we breathe. It's the water we swim in. It's the culture of pluralism. It's the culture of your God for you, my God for me. But there is one God. The Exodus 20, verse 5 version of the second commandment adds this line. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Well, we usually think of jealousy as bad, right? And usually for us, it is. We'll talk about covetousness later. But God, the supreme God, has the right to be jealous of worship because he's the only one that deserves you're in my worship. He has the right to demand that we worship him alone and not play around with false gods 
but soundly reject them. But there's other ways that we must be careful to observe the first and second commandment. We must embrace the one true God, too. It's not enough to reject false gods. We must embrace the one true God. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in his summary of the law, puts it this way. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And therefore, worshiping him alone means there's nothing in your life or my life that's more important than God or obeying his will. That means that your politics, your experiences, your philosophy, your superior at work or any other authority has no right to contravene the, learn the law of God and demand something of you. No one thing can be more important or contradict God's will in your life. Now, here in the United States, this has been part of our freedom from the beginning. We set aside a safe space, a freedom of conscience, we call it here in, these, in this land. As James Madison, the framer of the Constitution, stated in his 1780 memorial and remonstrance, conscience is the most sacred of all property. Conscience is the most sacred of all property. And that's something we need to continue to preserve so that we might keep the first commandment, amongst other things. Putting God's will first is an easy thing to say, but a hard thing to do and keep in practice. Every time that we turn to our own cleverness in the flesh, to our pleasures, to our possessions, to our work, or even our relationship, instead of God, we're breaking the first commandment. Did you realize that? When we fail to thank God or give him credit to acknowledge his goodness, when we're failing to do those things, we are breaking the first and second commandment. When we're irreverent towards God or towards his holy space, when we're disrespectful of holy things and attempt to use religion as an advantage, we're breaking the first and second commandment. While there are some other parts of the world that do fashion idols overtly, we don't see that so much here. Or do we? While we don't make false gods of wood, we fashion them. You better be certain of that. You might not bow down to a block of wood, but you and I make, make and fashion false gods all the time. Whenever we define God as something that we immediately respond to, whenever we have God as something that demands and dominates our time, that thing has become a false god. Nothing seems more apparent to me than smartphones and other screens and devices as false gods that draw us away from all sorts of good things, like the people we love, like worship, like conversation. Oh, I realize it's just a means, but it's a seductive means that opens images to you continually, constantly to distract you from what you should be about doing. Look, I stand guilty of this. Some of you might notice that I don't respond to texts as readily as, as I used to. It's because I actually stick my smartphone somewhere else in the house. Nothing's that important. If, they, if people, if you need me, I want to be there for you, don't get me wrong, but call me. And if I don't answer, call me again if it's an emergency. 
And I would advise you to do the same. Do not make a false god out of your cell phone and the things that it brings and become engrossed. But there's something even more that goes on with making false gods. Whenever we emphasize, and this is a really sneaky one, whenever we take the name of God or Jesus and plaster on it things that are unbiblical, that too is making a false god and an idol. For example, the god of the Republican Party is a false god and an idol. The god is a false god. Those things and ways that we take God and abuse him and twist him to our own advantage, that's making a false god. If it's not the God found in Holy Scripture and in the witness of the church, it's a false god. And we have to be very weary and wary also. (laughs) Might be weary too. But worshiping those false Christs or those false gods that are so prevalent to us today. If we do something, if we see something in Scripture and say to ourselves, well, my God wouldn't do that, or if we emphasize too much God's love without his judgment, or if we emphasize too much his law without his love, here too we're making a false God. And we have to be very careful that we don't do that because, you see, friends, each one of us has proclivities. We have things in our personality that we'd like to see on God. Have you ever noticed that? That if you quit reading scripture and get away from the church, all of a sudden, God starts becoming a lot like you. Hmm. Why is that? Because of the flesh and the world and the devil. But there's another point that I want to make to you here that would help you guard against that. That I have seen across the spectrum, across northern Ohio and beyond, and that's the fact that Biblical illiteracy has opened the door in Christianity to hundreds of false gods. If only we knew the Bible more, if only we listened to God's revealed word more, we wouldn't be so susceptible to some of these temptations. It's a very simple thing, but we're the most scripturally illiterate people that have ever seen, that have ever, but certainly post-Reformation, And we have no excuse for it. You have three or four Bibles on your shelves. You have the Bible on that smartphone. (laughs) Do you ever open it (laughs) on the smartphone, right? Maybe you do. If so, great. Friends, guard yourself against false gods too. Fellow Christians, Lent is a time to examine our lives, our priorities, and our beliefs and behaviors. And the Ten Commandments are the place to begin. They're the place that you start when you go to examine your conscience. If you think that you have not transgressed the first and the second commandment by now, I hope you'll think again. But at the same time, once you realize that you've transgressed these commandments, don't lose hope, because you have and I have. The reason the liturgy begins during Lent with the Ten Commandments is that we all do. But what do we pray? Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to change, to incline our hearts to keep this law. And our hearts would beseech thee. We're asking that he would change us because we can't do it alone. So don't lose hope, dear friends. He has saved you by his grace and fulfilled the law. 
He kept the first and second commandment in today's reading, where we do not. And because you're found in him, as Romans says, you have been justified by him. He chose you. And so out of love, let us examine ourselves and seek to be obedient to his way, as he has given us the great gift of repentance. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.